temptation. Got a cute video, but it kind of illustrates how deep-seated temptation is in our life. Uh, cute kids, kind of brutal. Make them sit there and stare at it and smell it and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but to be human is to struggle, to struggle with sin and temptation. And we've struggled with it ever since we entered this world, and we're going to struggle with it till the day that we depart. And Satan used it from the very beginning, and it worked. And so he's going to keep on using it to try to distract and to divide and to try and destroy us. And it can be really a daunting thing when we think about how we're going to struggle with temptation for the rest of our lives. But Satan is really playing on just our basic urges and desires to try to make us more like him and less like our Savior. And we might think, well, there's no way I want to become more like Satan. But really, in reality, if we are moving towards self-will and away from God's will, we are, in effect, becoming more like him. Um, But it's hardwired into us. And they say that opportunity only knocks once. Opportunity only knocks once, but temptation is incessant. It keeps banging on the door day after day. But we have, to be, we have to be vigilant. We're not supposed to let it in. And people have tried all kinds of ways throughout the years to try to keep themselves from temptation. Um, some have tried to inflict pain on their bodies. Uh, Martin Luther and the monks that he was a part of, they would crawl on their hands and knees and they would, you know, whip themselves on the back. And even Martin would sleep outside in the cold uh, without clothes or without any kind of blanket to kind of inflict pain on his body to try to rid it of temptation. Um, Others tried isolation Uh, There was a monk who lived about 500 AD, and he had them lower him in a cave, and he wore really rough clothing to deprive himself of all comfort, and he would have food delivered uh, via rope down to him. He did that for three years until he decided, you know what? Temptation's still going to follow me, even if I'm here in a, in a cave in the middle of nowhere. Uh, some have tried denial. They used to teach that some people taught that once you were baptized, you would no longer struggle with Satan. You would no longer struggle with those temptations and his attacks, uh, but a wise critic of that theology said, you know what, when you're baptized, it doesn't drown the devil. Doesn't drown the devil. But as much as we wish it did. And that's what we were talking about last week, Jesus' coronation ceremony when he went out to be baptized by his cousin John. And if you've grown up in the church like I have, we hear this story time and time again. We've seen it on the flannel graphs. We've seen it in all of the you know, pages that we've colored where Jesus is standing there and the dove is floating above him. And it loses some of its impact, I think, when we see it so often, we become familiar with it. You know, we asked the question last week, why would Jesus be baptized? Like, why would he even do that? Because John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. So why would Jesus go through that? He didn't need to repent. And we touched on four reasons why Jesus went through that ceremony of baptism. And today we're actually going to talk about the fifth reason. But just to recap real quick, um, the first reason was to affirm John's ministry. Uh, Jesus went out to his cousin. He went to see him on purpose to say, I'm putting my stamp of approval on what John is saying and on his message. And his message was the same one that Jesus would start off his ministry with. And that was that you need to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then secondly, it was to identify with the people that he was coming to save. Uh, The one who knew no sin became sin for those who had no righteousness. 
Jesus came to identify with us, and in so doing, we identify with him in his death and in his burial and in his resurrection. And third, it was a prophetic declaration. Uh, Jesus was telling everyone, I am submitted to my Father's will. The reason I came here, the whole reason I came to earth was to be a sacrifice for sins. I am the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. That's what he was saying. And then fourth, it was an illustration of the Trinity. We had all three parts of the Godhead participating in this act of baptism. You had Jesus being dunked. You had the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus. And then you had God the Father saying audibly, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus was anointed and empowered for his ministry at baptism. And today we're going to see very vividly the reason why we need the Holy Spirit and how that power works itself out in our lives. So today we're going to do Matthew 4, just making our way through it. Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. Uh, there was a place that I worked formerly, and they had a tradition there that whenever a new person started at our first meeting, they would go around the room, and you would introduce yourself, and you would also say some kind of random fact. And our boss chose the question, and so one day we had a new person start. We're going around the room, and the question that we were supposed to answer was, what was the very first concert that you ever went to? You guys have that in your mind? Very first concert you ever went to? We're going around the circle, and people are saying things like, you know, Aerosmith or Garth Brooks, you know, or Jethro Tull or whoever it is. And they get to me. They're like, Nathan, what was the first concert you ever went to? I'm like, anybody ever heard of Carmen? <laughs> no, nobody heard of Carmen. I had to explain it. But that was the first concert that I ever went to. And if you grew up in church, you know his most famous song was a song called The Champion, right? Everybody, is there anybody who hasn't heard of the song The Champion? Okay, good. Um, but we remember this song. <laughs> Alicia and the kids actually did it this last summer for camp, right? It was awesome. It was really good. It still gives me goosebumps. But the point of the song, as Carmen was writing it, was to depict the cosmic battle between Jesus and Satan. And it plays out in a boxing match, right? And Carmen calls it a fight for the ages as it depicts the battle that's going on. And this portion of scripture that we're going through today is not made up. As wonderful as that song was, and it would have, you know, visually to be able to see that, um, what, we're, what we're talking about today isn't made up. It actually played out. And Jesus here is giving us the key to overcoming the devil. I could use that key. 
Could you guys use that key too? Probably. Jesus has just been commissioned, and now he's getting ready for his very first test, his very first test of his kingliness and a demonstration of his authority. He's been coronated, but now it begs the question, is he worthy? Is he worthy to have this authority? And it makes me think, if you guys are you know, Marvel fans, it makes me think of Thor, right? And Thor's got this hammer, and nobody else can lift it. He's the only one that can lift it because he's the only one that's worthy until the last movie. And Captain America picks up the hammer, and he says, I knew it. I knew he was worthy. It's not like that. But Jesus is worthy. He was going to show us this in this temptation in the desert. In verse 1, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You can be sure that after the baptism comes the battle. How many times in our lives, after we've had some type of spiritual breakthrough, it seems like the trial is not far behind. And we're thinking to ourselves, excuse me? Like, really, God? Like, I just got done coming off the mountain from this spiritual high, and now I'm being met with this trial. And we have a tendency, unfortunately, to be caught off guard by those trials. Because when we're feeling pretty good about everything, that's when we leave ourselves open. We're vulnerable to attack because he's right there as we walk down off the mountain. In 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Paul writes, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And if you feel like you've got it all wired, if you feel like you've got it all figured out, you better be careful because that's when we're vulnerable. Pride goes before a fall, right? When we're happiest with our success, that's when we're most vulnerable to pride and failure. Our victories can be short-lived if we take our eyes off of the real victory. Um, Remember Elijah, the prophet of fire? He's up on Mount Carmel with all the prophets of Baal, calls down fire from heaven that burns up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, all the water that's in the, you know, the ditch that they had dug all the way around it. He personally puts an end to all the prophets of Baal. And then he hears that the queen's upset with him and he goes and hides in a cave. (laughs) He just got done with this huge victory and then he flees and hides in a cave. Or the people of Israel, they get delivered from Egypt, all these amazing signs, all these miracles, all the plagues, They're marching out of Egypt. They literally plundered Egypt on their way out. They gave, they're like, just take everything and leave. We're done. And then Pharaoh has a change of heart and they all freak out. It's like, wait a minute. You guys had this huge victory. Now comes the test and you guys are freaking out. So it doesn't mean that when we have a breakthrough, we're supposed to wait for the other shoe to drop. But it does mean that we're not to let our guard down. We're supposed to be prepared. Jesus is led out into the wilderness by the, by the Spirit. And this wilderness area that it's referencing is, it's a huge area. It's about 35 miles long by about 15 miles wide. Very desolate, very isolated. And Jesus is out there with the wild animals. And it's important to remember here at this point that this was part of God's plan. It was part of God's plan to send him out into the wilderness. And when we end up in those times in our own life, it's important to remember this is part of God's plan. He's still in control. He hasn't lost control of things. And there's two words in the scriptures that sound synonymous. They sound like they're the same thing, but they're actually quite different. And that is test and temptation. Test and temptation. They're very different. Jesus was going to be tempted by the devil. God tests He doesn't tempt. 
Satan tempts us to evil. Jesus was going to be tempted. Satan uses temptation for evil purposes. God uses them for good to build us up in our faith. What's the difference? All right. Our good buddy James writes this. James 1, 13 and 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. We're lured away by those things that we desire, fleshly lusts. Satan's about to try to lead Jesus into disobedience, but God is going to use it to prove his holiness and his worthiness. So testing and trials are both opportunities to strengthen our faith and grow in righteousness. And this is actually how James starts off his letters. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So Satan tempts, God will test us. And when we meet those tests, it's going to grow us. Um, We're going to get steadfastness. So God's not tempting you. Satan comes to lead us away by our fleshly desires, but we can meet those in God's power. And when we let the Holy Spirit move inside of us, live inside of us, when we're walking by the Spirit, we can flex our spiritual muscles, so to speak. Uh, But we got to be working out spiritually. Uh, This time of the year is always an interesting time of the year at the gym because it is packed with people. It is packed with people who have just made New Year's resolutions. This is the year. I'm going to lose the weight. I'm going to get in shape. Then by February, it starts to thin out a little bit. Then by March, things are really back to normal. So sometimes Christians, we're the same way. We make resolutions. I'm going to read the Bible all the way through this year, or I'm going to, you know, go to small group, or I'm going to, you know, pray every day, whatever it is. But over time, we tend to lose our steadfastness. But it's a good thing that people are in there in the gym. They're trying to, you know, they're trying to do it. And for the ones who stick with it, they're going to experience the benefits. And if it's been a while, if it was part of a resolution, if it's been a while since you've been in the spiritual gym of the Word, I'd encourage you to get back in there to flex your spiritual muscles. We need to stay in the Word. Uh, People may get annoyed People get annoyed when there's more people in the gym. I will tell you, in January and February, people are annoyed because, you know, everything's taken. You can't get to your equipment. People may get annoyed when you carve out time in your schedule to come to church. They may get annoyed when you carve out time in your schedule to go to small group or pray or whatever that looks like, but stay in it. Stay in it because here's why. In verse 2, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. You might say, oh boy, here's the part where he's going to talk about fasting. (laughs) Nobody likes to fast. I don't like to fast. But it's a testimony to how strong our flesh actually is when we try to fast. We live in a highly addictive society, highly addictive. Um, Devin just got back from a trip to Florida in the Everglades where they were doing kind of a survival uh, trip. And eight days, they had everybody check their phones in. When they, when they got there, eight days in a canoe, in the Everglades, no phone, no nothing. And I asked him, I was like, was people like, you know, begging for their phones? He's like, oh yeah, <laughs> people were jonesing for their phones. Uh, they were having withdrawals. We live in a highly addictive society and we rarely, if ever, deny ourselves. 
Um, and there have been numerous articles and stories written over the past decade probably about the health benefits of fasting, whether that is you know, skipping a meal or skipping a day. There's actually health benefits to it. Uh, God knows what he's talking about. But if we're just skipping a meal, then it's not doing anything for us spiritually. It may have health benefits, but it doesn't have spiritual benefits. So we have to, we have to replace that time, that time, that meal that we're skipping or that day that we would, uh, indulging in whatever thing that is, TV, phones, you know, social media, and replace it with the spiritual. Because when we take from the physical and we replace it with something spiritual, something dynamic happens in our life that is going to allow us to hear from him better, to be able to overcome temptation and those trials in our life that we're facing. It's not about not eating. (laughs) It's about communing with the Father. That's what Jesus is doing. After 40 days and 40 nights, he gets hungry. Sounds kind of obvious, right? 40 days, I'd be hungry too. But for those of you who have fasted, you know that after about five or six days, you actually start to lose your appetite. So your stomach shrinks, right? All of those growlings and hunger pains start to go away. And then you no longer are hungry. It's kind of a very strange thing. But when your hunger comes back, that's a warning sign. Because when your hunger comes back, that's your body telling you, you are on the verge of death. You're getting ready to starve. So the hunger comes back. And that's where he is. He's on the edge of starvation. And I was reading an article this week that, you know, your body, you can actually fast. You can go without food for somewhere between 40 to 50 days. Um, You can only go without water for like four days. But you can go that long. Most people, though, that are facing starvation will die you know, before 45 days. And so Jesus here is on the edge of starvation. He's weak and he's close to dying. That's when the devil comes to tempt him, when he's at his weakest. He walks on the scene when he's at his low point. And that's the same thing he does with us as well. He's going to wait for that weak moment to tempt you and I. And we feel like we don't have the strength to resist. We don't have the power and we can't do it in our own strength. We just can't do it in our own strength. We need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Um, we need to be communing with the Father. Jesus had been using this time in isolation as a time of preparation. Okay? And too many times um, we use these times, these seasons of isolation, but we don't use it for preparation. And so we get weak when we should be strong. It's weird because that's when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, he said, when I am weak, then I am strong. And you read that and you're like, that doesn't make any sense, Paul. What are you talking about? When you're weak, then you're strong. Well, when we're weak, if we're standing next to our Savior, that's about as strong as you can be. So you may be weak physically. Jesus was weak physically, but he was strong spiritually because he had used that time for preparation. Too often we squander that time when we should be preparing. Uh, Because the devil doesn't come at us and say, you know, Chris, this Thursday... Three o'clock, you and me, I'm coming at you. He doesn't do that. Because if he did, I guarantee Chris would spend the time between now and then preparing. But we let our guard down and we're not preparing. And so when he comes at us, we're caught off guard. Temptations that are anticipated and guarded against and prayed against have very little power to harm us. We need to, we know those areas in our life where we're weak. We need to anticipate them, we need to guard against them, and we need to pray against them so that we can be successful. Jesus was weak physically, but strong spiritually because of his preparation. Three things that the devil uses to tempt Jesus to sin, and not coincidentally, it's the same three things that he uses for you and I. Strategies. He knows human nature pretty well. 
Uh, he's had a long time to figure it out. So the first one, he tries to get Jesus to doubt the father's provision. Doubt the father's provision. Hey, if you're the son of God, like there's all these stones around here. They look like bread to me. Why don't you just use your power and turn them into bread? The father's not providing for you. Why would he let you starve? Why would he let you go through this? There's a few translations that use the phrase, since you are the son of God. Um, mine says, if you are the son of God. Some of them say, since you're the son of God. I actually prefer that because I don't think that he's trying to get Jesus to doubt if he is the son of God. Because 40 days earlier, he just came up out of the water and heard God say audibly, this is my son. Okay, but what I think he was trying to get him to doubt was God's plan. Is this really God's plan? How could this be his plan? He's not providing for you. You are dying. I think that's what he was trying to do. Instead of being in submission to the Father's will, the devil was trying to make Jesus assert his own will in that situation and serve himself. And this was the first temptation that the devil used against Eve, right? In the garden. He made her think that God was holding out on her. God's not giving you everything you need. He's holding out on you. There's more. You don't have everything that you need. He's telling Jesus, you're going to die. And he was trying to tell Eve, you're not going to die. <laughs> you're not going to die. Why would God do that to you? He gave you all of these trees to eat from. Did he really say you can't eat of the tree? He said, no, we can eat, but we're going to die. And he says, you're not going to die if you eat that tree. So why would this be happening to you if you're the son of God? Do something in your own power. Exercise your faith. Make it happen. Well, not only did Adam and Eve succumb to this temptation, but so did the father of the faith. So did Abraham. Uh, God had told Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. And he believed that promise. Even in his old age, it says that he was counted to him as righteousness because he believed. And he held on to that until one day, Sarah said, let's face the facts, Abe. You and I aren't getting any younger and it's not happening Really, I think what God probably meant was to take the initiative. You know, God helps those who help themselves. That's probably what he meant. And so Abraham has a moment of doubt. He makes a really bad decision, has a kid with her servant, with Hagar, and has Ishmael. And that decision has consequences that are still being played out in the Middle East today. Um, Ishmael, his sons, the Arab nations, trying to wipe out the sons of Isaac, right? The Jews. And that's still being played out because he doubted the provision of God. The first Adam failed with food in the garden. But the last Adam, the devil was trying to get him to fail with food in the desert. It's important to note here that Adam had the perfect environment. He was in a garden. He had all the food that he wanted. He could eat from everything. There was nothing in the garden that could harm him. And he still fell. But Jesus was in the desert. He had no comfort he didn't have air conditioning. I've, I've fasted, okay? I'm sitting in air conditioning. I have a protein shake that I can drink, you know. Um, I'm fasting food. Jesus didn't have no. He's in the desert with the wild animals. It's hot. It's sweaty. He is deprived of all comfort. And yet, he comes away victorious. And my point is, is that some people try to use their circumstances as an excuse for why they sin. But what we see here is, even Adam in a perfect situation still fell. And Jesus, our Savior, shows us that even in the most difficult situations, we can be victorious if we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. Our sin nature is ever-present. So how do we defeat it? How did Jesus take round one? Well, he uses the word. 
He says, but it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 8.3, to combat the devil. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Paul writes that our only offensive weapon against the devil is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, in the movies, I, I love movies, and I like medieval movies, and there is always a scene in those movies where, you know, the hero loses his sword. He goes to grab his sword, or he gets the sword knocked out of his hand, and they do a close-up on the sword because the hero needs the sword to defeat the bad guy. And we need the sword. We need the word if we're going to defeat the enemy. And here's the best part about it. We can do it. This is not difficult. We can do it, but we have to have the word hidden in our heart. Our physical, there's so much focus right now on physical well-being, and I get it. That is a huge concern, but I would remind all of us that our physical well-being is not our most crucial need. God's word in all of its power and its sustaining, um, you know, health for spiritually is what we need. That is the thing that we need for our existence is the word. Jesus told his disciples, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. All what things? All the things that we feel like are necessary, God will add to us. He says, don't be anxious. God will provide in his timing. We always suffer when we willingly go against God's word. No matter how urgent that need seems at the time, that need may seem urgent, but when we go against God's will, there's going to be suffering. Relying on our own self-effort doesn't bring any glory to God. Our, our existence as God followers is to bring him glory, and in doing things in our own strength, trying to make it happen in our own strength does not bring him glory. Uh, we have a responsibility, obviously, to do the things that we can do, but we need to let God do the things that God can do. He'll provide in his time. It's kind of like the guy who was talking to God and he said, man, God, so like a million years is just, you know, like a second to you. God's like, yeah, that's right. He said, well, so like a million dollars is just like a penny to you. It's like, yeah, that's true. Well, God, can I have a penny? God says, just a second. <laughs> He'll provide in his timing. Jesus met the test and he overcame the temptation. So second, the devil tries to make Jesus doubt God's protection. Tried to make him doubt God's provision and now his protection. Verse five, when the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, the first temptation already existed. Jesus was hungry, obviously. Lots of stones. He could have turned into bread. This one had to be manufactured. And here's the game changer for this one. This, you know, Satan, the devil, is quoting scripture. He said, wait a minute, Nathan. You said that we needed to know scripture if we were going to beat back the devil, and now he's using it. What's up with that? Well, yes, Satan knows scripture. He knows the Bible. But he's not submitted to it. We can quote scripture, but here's the thing. It's not just about quoting scripture. We have to be submitted to the word if we want to wield the sword. Satan knows the scripture, but he's not submitted to it. And the devil is a master manipulator. 
He is very good at taking things that are true and just twisting it a little bit, twisting it out of context or adding things to it to make it untrue. And in here, what he's doing is he's omitting. It's what he's leaving out that's the problem. And he quotes Psalm 91, Psalm 91, 11 and 12, but he leaves out one line. Here's what he says. Verse 11, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. To guard you in all your ways. Whose ways? God's ways. God's ways. Jesus was committed to following God's will. He would be protected as long as he stayed in his Father's ways. He actually said to his disciples in John's 4, he said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. That's my food, is to do his will. That's what's going to sustain me. So the devil takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. Biblical scholars think that, you know, it was the top of a place in the temple called Herod's Portico. And uh, these ceilings, uh, what are they, like 20 feet maybe, 15, 20 feet, if that. Herod's Portico, what they say is it was facing the Kidron Valley towards the Mount of Olives, and they estimated that the drop would have been about 450 feet. So this was not some small feat. He's like, listen, jump off. Your father already said he was going to protect you. So why not do it? And by the way, this would be a miraculous sign. This would be a fantastic sign to everyone that you are the Messiah. This would show everyone. This would be a clear sign that you are divine. So if you're not going to use your divine power, maybe we can tempt God to use his. If you're not going to use your power to satisfy yourself, maybe we can tempt God and his power. All you have to do is just jump off. He said he'll protect you. Let's see it. So we have to ask the question, why didn't Jesus jump off the pinnacle of the temple? People would have believed that would have been a a huge sign, maybe for a little bit. But today's miracle is tomorrow's bore, honestly. Today's miracle is tomorrow's bore. That's how we are. And sensationalism has always appealed to the flesh. It always has, and it always will. Um, When Jesus was talking to disciples about the end times, he said this in Matthew 24, 24. He says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. I'm warning you. In the last days, people will come along. They will provide all kinds of wonders and miracles trying to lead people astray. But dramatic signs and wonders don't produce faith. They don't produce faith. They only produce a desire to see more. Miracles don't necessarily produce faith, but they do strengthen the faith of those who already believe. Isn't that amazing? For those who don't believe, they just want to see more. Think about the children of Israel in the desert. God provided so many miracles time after time after time, and still they doubted. They still wanted to see more. They still had the flesh rising up inside of them. But for the believer... They just serve to strengthen our faith. When something miraculous happens in your life, when you cannot doubt that it was anything else but God's provision, doesn't that just strengthen your faith? It doesn't make you say, okay, God, do it again. Do it again. Now, we may pray that later on, but we know because he came through in the past, he will come through again, and it strengthens our faith. But Jesus responds with another verse from Deuteronomy. He says, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So Satan tried to get Jesus to doubt God's provision and then doubt his protection to prove how much your father loves you by delivering you from something that is obviously not his will. 
And I wonder if sometimes we do this in our own lives. If we live recklessly or if we make decisions, we know we're wrong and just presuming that God's going to bail us out. And actually, Paul writes, I think it's in Romans, he says, do you presume upon the kindness of his riches, the riches of his kindness? Basically, are you taking advantage of the grace of God? Are you presuming that just because you made bad decisions, he's going to bail you out again this time? And while it is true that God's mercies are new every morning, that's a blessing, there are still consequences for our stupid decisions. There are still consequences. Abraham um, made a stupid decision, and it's still being felt today, unfortunately. So we don't know. We don't get to choose our consequences. And so we don't know if it's going to be something that lasts a day or a generation. We need to really be sure that we're not taking risks simply to fulfill our own pride, our own ambitions. We need to make sure that it's God's will. Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. So doubting his provision, doubting his protection, and now doubting the promise. What was the promise? Well, in Psalms 2 and in Psalms 110, these are both what we call messianic psalms. It says this in Psalms 2 verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth for your possession. And then in Psalm 110, verse 1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The kingdoms of the world were already promised to Jesus. They were already promised to him. And the fulfillment of those promises is found in Revelations eleven fifteen, And this is what it says is going to happen in the tribulation. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. So if it was promised, why was it a temptation to Jesus? Now, all of these were very real temptations to Jesus. Otherwise, otherwise Satan wouldn't have brought him. I mean, you can't, you can't bribe me. You can't uh, tempt me with broccoli. Not going to happen. Okay, <laughs> I ate some accidentally once. I almost gagged. But like cherry cobbler, that's a different story. Like I could be tempted with that. These were real temptations. Why was this a temptation? He was offering Jesus a shortcut. He was offering him a way around the pain. Like I will give them to you now. Why go to the cross? Why dive into hell? Why go through all that suffering when you can have it right now? This is lust, right? Lust says, I want it right now. I want to fulfill my flesh right now. Take the shortcut. Now, how could Satan even offer this to Jesus? How was it his to give? Well, think back to the garden, back to Adam and Eve, back when they took the bait. Eve was deceived, but Adam knew exactly what he was doing. Adam made the decision, and God had given Adam dominion over all the earth, over all the animals, over everything. He said, you're in charge. You're the one that owns this. And when, God, and when Adam, you know, when he submitted to the will of the devil, when he bit the fruit, in essence, what he was doing is he was turning over the title deed of all of that to Satan at that point, saying, okay, I will, I will submit to you. And once he did that, lost the title deed. That's why Satan is called the God, small g, of this world. He is the one that is now in control because of sin. Once sin entered in, he was the one that was in control. But here's the beautiful truth. 
that Jesus would redeem that title deed to the earth. He bought the world back when he died on the cross. He bought it back with his blood. We touched on this back in the book of Ruth, for those of you who were with us. Um, a title deed to a piece of property. And what they would do is they would take the scroll and they would write out on it all of the details to that property and who owned it. But if at any time that, that title deed, that piece of property needed to be sold to pay off a debt... Then what they would do is they would flip over that scroll, that title deed, and they would write on the back of it all of the obligations that needed to be fulfilled for that property to be brought back to that person. Now, remember, property couldn't disappear forever out of a family. Every 50 years, there was a year of Jubilee, and it had to return. But if you wanted to redeem that land prior to that, there were all of these things that were written on the back that you had to do, and then it was sealed. It was sealed in the presence of the elders of the city. That's what happened. That's what Boaz did. Boaz was a picture of Jesus, and he redeemed Naomi, who was a picture of the Jewish people. And in so doing, he also redeemed Ruth, the Gentile, who is a picture of the church. That's what Boaz did, and that's what Jesus does. So I'm going to read this. This is a long bit of scripture, but that's okay. We're covering a lot of scripture today. This is Revelations chapter 5. And I would read the whole thing. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read like the first 10 verses. But this is how Jesus redeems. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain and seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he who had taken the scroll and the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Satan was saying, bow down and worship me. I'll give it all to you right now. Choose self-will over God's will. But just as I mentioned in the beginning, self-will is always against God's will. It's always moving closer to the enemy. Because we can have really anything we want or anything we feel like we deserve if we do it the world's way. If we do it the world's way. But Satan is a counterfeiter. He tries to give us everything that God promises, only it's going to cost you a lot more. Because that old saying that I've said before, sin is going to take you farther than you want to go. It's going to keep you longer than you want to stay. And it's going to cost you more than you want to pay. That's what sin does. He always promises more than he can deliver. And it's never what we think it'll be. So don't settle for the brief and disappointing successes that sin promises. We'll inherit the promise when we trust him, when we put our faith in him. We'll realize his provision, we'll experience his protection, and we'll inherit the promise when we put our faith in him and we do things God's way. 
Verse 10, then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So Jesus hits Satan one more time with scripture. He slaps him with Deuteronomy three times. Three strikes and you're out. That's where this came from. <laughs> it's interesting that he uses Deuteronomy all three times. And uh, I, was listening to, um, I was listening to a guy speak and he said, I wonder, I can't help but wonder if that's where Jesus was having his devotionals that day. Like he was using that time to prepare and he's in the book of Deuteronomy and that's what he's quoting. And if we spend time in the word, that will give us the ammunition we need to fight back the devil. We have to have it hidden in our heart. We have to be submitted to the word if we want to wield the sword. And that's what Jesus did. At his word, the devil had to go. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you will be able to endure it. Each one of us has the ability to resist the devil. It's best if we use God's words. <laughs> Our words have power but also use God's words. Because what has a tendency to happen when Nathan prays is I can pray selfishly or I can, play, I can pray wrongly if I'm not careful. But when we use God's words, it will not return void. It will always work. So this is what Jesus' brother Jude writes in chapter one, verse nine. It says, but even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Not even Michael, the archangel, the strongest angel in heaven, he didn't rebuke. He said, the Lord rebuke you. It's good to use God's word, especially when battling our enemy. His word will not return void. Um, when the devil left, the angel showed up and began to minister to Jesus. Uh, he didn't choose to provide for himself. He didn't make loaves of bread, and then he got angel food cake. <laughs> it's always better. Whatever God provides is better. Proverbs 20 17, Solomon says that bread gained by deceit or fraud is sweet to a man, but later his mouth will be filled with gravel. You could try to get ahead by cutting corners or by cheating or trying to make it happen in your own power, and it might be sweet for a little bit, but eventually doing things in your own power is going to be gravel in your gut. And Jesus knows the temptations that you struggle with. It's not a surprise to him. It's not a surprise. He came here to identify with us as sinners. Uh, there's an advertising campaign that's going on. You may have seen. It's called He Gets Us. I don't know if you've seen that. There's been billboards and print and digital ads and all kinds of stuff. He Gets Us. Um, it's a clever campaign. It really is. And I've been on the site and I've tried to kind of, you know, vet that and see what they're after. Um, it just, it appears from what I see, they, they're wanting to get you connected with a person. That's what they're wanting to, you to do. Um, and they're saying Jesus is the answer. And I really hope that that's where that is going. But uh, the, the campaign is he gets us and he does get us. He understands. Hebrews 4 tells us that we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way, just like we are, but he didn't understand. He didn't sin. He understands. He identified with us, but we also need to identify with him, with our Savior who did not sin. This is important. When temptation comes, don't look at it. <laughs> These poor kids, they told they couldn't get out of the chair. They just had to sit there and stare at that marshmallow. I don't recommend that strategy, okay? Get out of the chair. Run out of the room. 
Don't look at it. Uh, Matthew Henry has a quote, and he said, those who don't want to eat the forbidden fruit shouldn't stand next to the forbidden tree. If you don't want to eat the forbidden fruit, don't stand next to the forbidden tree. Because the more you dwell on that desire, yielding is just a matter of time. Don't dwell on it. Don't look at it. We need to flee. Get out of the chair. Look to the one who conquered it. Keep your eyes on him. Hide his word in, his heart, in your heart. Keep your eyes on him. I was reading an article this week about uh, hurdlers. Uh, is anybody, did anybody run hurdles at all in high school? You did. Okay. So hopefully this is true. This is what I read in the article at least. Um, and it was saying that before you begin to jump, before you begin to jump over the hurdle, about two steps before, you need to actually look at the next hurdle. Is that true? Look at the next hurdle. Don't look at the hurdle that you're jumping over because what could happen is you could actually hit that hurdle that you're looking at. But look at the next hurdle and jump over that. So you need to be focusing on the next one, looking towards the finish line. I thought this was enlightening. This is a sentence from the article, uh, and they're talking about hurdling. This had no spiritual you know, overtones to it. It says, there is so much going on in the course of a hurdle race that can distract you that can break your concentration, that you have to have some kind of method in place that allows you to maintain focus. And when the mind feels inclined to give in to its natural tendency to wander or to redirect, redirect its attention, as we all know, when the mind wanders, the eyes follow. And when the hurdles get smashed and winnable races get lost because our minds wander and our eyes follow. You can come up, Grace. Jesus didn't take time to consider the devil's offer. He didn't mull it over. He didn't entertain it before he remembered the scripture. He actually focused on the very things that Satan was trying to get him to doubt. He focused on God's provision. He focused on God's protection. And he focused on God's promise. What he had done, what he had promised for him. He was focused on that. James 1.12, James says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Gang, if we rely on his provision, on his protection, and if we remember his promise, if we are steadfast in those things, we will inherit the crown of life, right? That's what we're after. We're after the promise. That's, you know, Paul said, that's what my whole life is for, is, is reaching the prize, the upward call of Christ Jesus. And that's what we're after as well. Um, so this week, when you face temptations, when you face trials, it's been a week. <laughs> when we said we we're going we're gonna to talk on temptations and trials, I'm like, all right, bring it on. Here we go. And it's going to come after you this week. It's going to hit hard. But remember, hide his word in your heart. Okay? Wield the sword. That's what you need to fight back the enemy. Trust in his protection. Trust in his promises. In his time, he will deliver. Don't give in to self-will. Make sure we're following his will and, and walking in the spirit. Amen. 